Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Okay, so I have a question for you. Who knows what KonMari is? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, if you've never heard of it, It's a method for decluttering and reorganizing your home. And it was introduced by a woman named um, uh, Marie Kondo, who's from Japan. And she wrote her book back in 2014, The uh, Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which I have no, I can't even relate to that (laughs) at all, okay? Um, But when her Netflix series came out just this last January, Um, It got really popular, and so uh, she got a whole lot more attention here in the U.S. Um, Okay, those of you who raised your hand, how many of you have tried it? Or maybe some of us. Wow, okay, I'm impressed. (laughs) So what's the um, uh, criteria for deciding what to keep or, or not keep? Yeah, does it spark joy? And if it doesn't, then you're supposed to get rid of it, right? Um, now, to Western ears, I, for, okay, so those of you that tried it, uh, that question, how did it make you feel? Was it kind of like strange to ask? You're supposed to take the item, hold it in your hand, and then ask, does it spark joy? Was that weird? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it would be strange to ask that kind of a question. In fact, there's been a bit of a backlash against her with her method in the U.S., um, and it's centered around this cultural disconnect between Kondo's um, Shinto beliefs and then the Western mindset of consumerism. Okay. Uh, for Kondo, the decluttering is actually a spiritual activity. But for most Westerners, it's usually just a utilitarian exercise, and there's a whole different set of questions you ask, like, is it worn out? Is it dated? Um, how, how, what's the last time I used it kind of thing, right? Yeah. So um, either way, though, questions like these can be really helpful because they sort through the cl- uh, clutter, and then it helps you to decide what to keep or not keep. Okay, so what if we were to compare this decluttering craze that's um, happening in homes to the decluttering craze that's happening in churches? Actually, it's more like people are decluttering their faith, and church happens to be one of those items (laughs) that they're kind of getting rid of because it's not sparking anything, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, KonMari can be a metaphor, um, so I'm going to really take this metaphor, okay, (laughs) for that process of piling up, because she has you do that on a bed or somewhere, you pile them all up, piling up all your beliefs that are hanging in your mind's closets, um, emptying out the drawers of all those spiritual practices that you just abandoned, okay? You quit doing them. And then taking a look at what's on your shelf, and this is literal. There are probably a number of books on your shelves that are gathering dust now. So how do you decide what to keep or not keep? What might be the question that you would ask yourself to help you decide? What's the criteria for this kind of faith uh, decluttering? 
I think it's important to know because um, if the process of decluttering or the term that we kind of use now is deconstructing our faith becomes purely utilitarian, like does, is this working for me? Does this work? Um, you may end up missing God altogether. And isn't that the reason for the deconstruction in the first place? God was lost. I'm not sure um, the question, does it spark joy, would necessarily apply in the situation of faith. Uh, I follow this blogger I have for a number of years. His name is Ed Sizewski. And he went through his own faith crisis. Um, by the way, he's just come out with his book, Flee, Be Silent, Pray, and I, I highly recommend it. And in that book, he explains how he came back to God um, through contemplative practices. But in a separate article, Ed made that comparison between the KonMari of stuff and the KonMari of faith. And he felt that getting rid of, of clutter, faith clutters, <laughs> uh, on the basis of joy um, is, is not good because really joy is more of an outcome than it is a measuring stick. So he suggested this question. Does this obscure God? Think about that one for a minute. Does this obscure God? I kind of like it. Now, it may or may not be a good question to ask, but it's a good example of a question that could help sort through what's really important. Questions are a defining feature of a relationship with God. In fact, without questions, I think faith becomes rather anemic. A strong faith has had to work through um, the uncertainties of life, um, the parts of life that are messy and hard, that are full of paradoxes and gray areas. A strong faith is willing to ask the tough questions. The Psalms are filled with agonizing questions like, how long, O Lord? In Psalm 10, David asks this question, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I know that feeling. In the Gospels, Jesus asks a lot of questions too, and sometimes not very nicely. <laughs> it's like the time he was in the um, boat with his disciples during the storm, and he said, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then to Peter, he put him on a spot when he asked, so who do you say I am? In Mark 10, um, Jesus asked the same question in two stories that are, are set side by side in that chapter. What do you want me to do for you? In the first story, their answer is met by some scolding from Jesus in the second story, their answer is followed by a miraculous healing. Completely different outcomes to the same question. Questions are, are powerful in how they can expose what's hidden in the heart or how they can bring clarity to what's um, confusing or obscure. So this morning, as part of our series on prayer, I would like to suggest that asking questions in your prayers can not only um, like reorganize what's going on internally, but I believe that it can lead to a, a deeply spiritual encounter with God. Asking questions is one way to be honest with God.
At this point, um, I want to confess that I, I kind of have a complicated relationship with prayer. Um, for many years, prayer was a lot like my relationship to diets. I was never consistent. And then I felt really guilty because I was inconsistent. And then there was this feeling like God was always angry with me. I couldn't get past that. I resisted the rules and the formulas, like the acronym ACTS that Kurt mentioned last week. And I didn't like praying in groups, mainly because I felt this pressure to, to say the right words. And then I noticed I had this motivation of wanting to um, sound super spiritual so that I could impress people. And even now, after all these years, I, after being a Christian for a number of years, I, I, I feel like there's still a lot that I don't understand that I need to learn, um, not just learn, but also unlearn. So all of this is to say um, I'm a bit nervous talking to you about prayer. In many ways, I feel kind of um, unqualified. So um, I'm not going to unpack a Bible passage like I love to do, which I normally do when I'm up here. I'm going to assume that most of us, if not all of us, believe that prayer is important in some way. Instead, I want to tell you my story of struggling with prayer, um, how I came to approach God in a specific way, especially when I was facing a personal crisis or feeling um, stuck or unsure. As with any story, um, my experience is not what everyone can uh, relate to, and it's certainly not going to be what everyone is going to experience for themselves. But the main thing that I want you to hear this morning is this. I believe that each person can find a way to pray that doesn't obscure God. And a story of pray from person to person or from season to season. So this is my story of how I figured out a way to pray that fit me best of how I learned to take my questions to God. Often, I've had to work on refining the question until I get to uh, what I call the question of the heart. It's that critical question where it becomes a turning point in that crisis or gets me unstuck. When I get to that question, it's like, um, uh, like a door that opens up into the space between heaven and earth and I know that God is near and listening. And I can tell that something is about to shift in my reality. It's in that space that I experience transformation through prayer. Now, you might be wondering whether, you know, how I know that that transformation is real. How do I know the answer came from God? And to be honest, I don't. <laughs> um, at least not in the moment. Eve has been, don't get an answer, though. Just the process of asking questions has been transformative by itself. But when I think I've received an answer from God, um, in the end, though, I, I don't think it matters whether I heard God's voice, which is language I tend to avoid, um, or if it was just a light bulb moment like this epiphany. Okay? I choose instead to look for the fruit. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 12, you know the tree by its fruit. Something changes in me, like a change from anxiety to peace, or um, the anger dissipates because I figure out why I'm angry or who I'm really angry at, and sometimes it's God. 
And let me say here that, that you know, God can really handle our anger. It's totally okay to be angry. And in fact, you can be angry at God and still be worshiping. They can't exist. They can't coexist. One fruit that's the most meaningful to me is when I become a little more aware of who I am and who God is to me. It's the fruit that assures me that this answer came from God or that God was involved in my processing. This morning in telling my story, um, I, I really am not going to try and spark joy. <laughs> I want to spark hope. Hope that there's a God who sees you and loves you and, um, and, and some way that you will know that God, that what, who you are and what you bring to him matters to him. You matter to God. So in my story, um, I need to go back to the time when I quit praying. It was when I um, went from being a Bible school graduate to becoming an atheist. The main indicator to me that something was falling apart spiritually for me was this feeling of distance from God. The more I tried to pray, the more God was absent. And whatever words went up, hit the ceiling, and fell. Frustration with prayer was really what started my um, journey to atheism. And eventually, I just got tired of this constant disappointment and guilt, and my faith just shriveled up. It was this feeling that I, I was abandoned. I felt abandoned. It was then that I decided that it was a whole lot easier to believe that God just didn't exist. But after a couple of years, um, I still wasn't happy because in the end, atheism wasn't fitting me either. It was at that point that my friend Helen came to visit me from Texas and she spent a week with us, and in that week, everything changed. The ironic thing is my frustration with prayer that started me down the road to atheism also marked the beginning of my return back to God. And this is how it played out. Instead of preaching to me or um, pulling out her Bible and using verses like a weapon like other people were doing with me, um, all Helen did was ask me a series of questions and then she would wait until I answered, and when I answered, she listened without any judgment. So this is the first question she asked me. Harriet, what do you want? What do you really want? I immediately took the question as permission to just express all my disappointment with life of feeling useless and unproductive. Straight out answer, I wanted success. I wanted to make a difference in the world, to do something significant. And if you don't know yet, I'm on Enneagram 3, which I didn't know anything about Enneagram back then. This is totally in line with my number three achiever. Um, yeah, that was, the, that was the answer that I gave her. And as I was unloading that to her, a different question started to pop up in the back of my mind, because I suddenly realized that God was like nowhere in the picture. God wasn't a part of my dreams for success. This is the question that surfaced. 
how badly do I want God even? How badly do I want God? It was like every disappointment that I had with God had created this crusty layer around my heart. And to find God again, I had to be willing to have that crust broken, to become vulnerable to God again. I had a decision to make. How badly did I want God? In that moment, a desire for God was sparked. And I chose God. I chose God over all my dreams for success. If Helen's um, first question was about how badly God, I wanted God, the next question she asked had to do with how badly God wanted me. But I didn't know that at first. This was her question. So where is Jesus in your life? Where is Jesus in your life? And my answer is, I had no clue. <laughs> Over the years, Jesus had pretty much faded into nothingness. When I told her, <laughs> the next thing Helen said was like the last thing I wanted to hear. In fact, I'd rather she preach hellfire and damnation than to ask what she did. She asked me to pray. <laughs> and I, to take that question to God directly and ask that question, where is Jesus in my life? Um... I was incredulous, and I was um, super defiant. I said, nope, <laughs> I am not going to pray. But she kept insisting uh, until I gave in. Eventually, I said, okay, I'll give it a try, but I really had no expectations of anything happening. I'll never forget the effort that it took to pray because I hadn't prayed for years it was like I was swimming at the bottom of a lake through this deep sludge to try and get to the surface. It was awful. It was really, really hard to try and pray. But I, then I did um, have a breakthrough. And this time, instead of my words feeling like they bounced off the ceiling, um, I had this sense that there was someone who was present and listening, that something very different was happening this time when I prayed. Now, when I, I did break through, uh, what happened next is kind of weird uh, for me to describe. In fact, so weird that I don't tell this part of my story very often, mainly because I don't want to set up expectations. Um, but maybe even more, I don't want you to think that I'm crazy. So I, I, I really don't want to see any Urkel faces out there. <laughs> um, but if you can't help it, that's okay. I'm just going to ignore you, okay? <laughs> um, yeah. All I ask is that you just kind of hang in there with me um, to the end because there is a point that I want to make, okay? Is that a deal? Okay. <laughs> um, after I broke through the sludge... Um, this moving pit into us started to develop in my mind. It was like someone took a DVD and inserted it into a slot in my brain and pushed the start button, okay? I saw myself standing in front of a huge set of um, heavy wooden doors. You know, like the kind that you might see in a medieval castle kind of doors. Right? Um, I, I noticed that those doors were closed, and... Instinctively, I also knew that on the other side of those doors was God. So, of course, I tried to push those doors open, 
but they wouldn't budge. And so I pushed harder and nothing. I felt this frustration grow, the same, exact same frustration that I had before when I tried praying and God seemed so distant. But then suddenly, the doors began to swing open by themselves, and sure enough, I saw an enormous, I mean really enormous room, and on the weirdest side, I could see two thrones. And then I had the weirdest sensation. I, I just couldn't move my legs. I couldn't step into the room and get across that room, even though I so wanted so badly to walk across, or actually maybe run across. It was like my feet were, were glued to the floor. And so I got frust frustrated. I use that word a lot. It's like my life, okay? So I got frustrated all over again until I saw a figure get up from one of the thrones and start walking towards me. And I... I knew, somehow I knew that was Jesus. And he got to where I was standing, and he took my arm and started to lead me back across the room towards the thrones. And I was really surprised that my legs were actually moving. But as I walked, I happened to glance down, and I noticed that the floor was covered with blood, this layer of blood. In that split second, something clicked in my brain and I realized what had gone wrong in my previous attempts to pray. It dawned on me that I had been entering the wrong throne room, an empty throne room. Because I was trying so hard to be a good Christian, a successful Christian, and of course, you know, pray according to the rules. But this throne room wasn't empty, and there wasn't any trick to opening the doors. It was totally open to me only because of what Jesus did. When I reached the other side of the room with Jesus, I fell down to the floor in front of the other throne where God sat, and I felt myself being picked up and held close in God's lap. It was then that I understood where Jesus was. He had always been with me, loving me. I had never been abandoned. Jesus would do whatever it took to convince me that God wanted me badly, that God loved me. Later, as I started reading my Bible again, because it had been years, too, since I had picked up my Bible, I came across Hebrews 4.16, and that verse became very real and personal to me. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Okay, so here's the point I want to make in sharing my experience. I came to realize that it's nearly impossible to pray to a God that I'm not convinced loves me. It's hard to ask the critical questions if you're not sure that it's the answers come from a good and loving God. It's hard to pray if you think God is angry with you. Just like it's, it's hard to be a part of a community if you're not feeling safe, it's hard to pray if you're not sure you're safe with God. Since then, I've never questioned God's love for me again. Because of love, I know that God is near and listening. And I know that God wants me to ask those tough questions and work through them in God's presence.
So the last part of my story is a final question that Helen asked me, and, and this one um, kind of took me by surprise. It was this. Does Harriet love Harriet? That was rather odd at first when I heard that. Does Harriet love Harriet? But I knew the answer right away. Uh, no, I hate myself. I felt like a total failure, not just as a Christian, but as a mom and as a wife. Now, granted, I look back now, and some of that was probably due to postpartum depression. I had just given birth to our third son in three years. So I was not doing well in a lot of ways. Um, but I had always struggled with self-worth. I constantly beat myself up. Well, you can guess what Helen said next. Okay, go take it to God in prayer. And, um, and this time I did with a little less hesitation. Um, and thankfully, there wasn't that sludge feeling like before. It was a little easier to pray. And also because of the last prayer time and this DVD thing that happened, it wasn't long before I sensed God's presence. But this time, though, there was this conversation that started taking place in my brain, in my mind, and it was so vivid that my imagination kind of took over. And in my mind, I saw God uh, holding this beautifully wrapped box in his hands, and I heard this question, Harriet, if I wanted to give you this gift, would you reject it? Um, my immediate response was, no, of course not. Then I heard this. But Harriet, you are my gift to you. If you reject yourself, you reject me because I created you and I love who I created. Now, I had just figured out how badly I wanted God and I was not about to reject God again, so I took that gift. And ever since then, I've been learning to love myself. It's been a long process, though. It's been a really long process of coming to terms with who I am and um, accepting and embracing all of me, both the strengths and the weaknesses. If prayer is hard if you're not sure you're safe with God, prayer is even harder if you're not sure you're safe with yourself. You are a beautiful, precious gift from God to yourself. So this is my story of how prayer, at least the um, messed up beliefs that I had about prayer, nearly killed my faith, but then how prayer ended up saving, saving it. I've never had a DVD experience or... Um, a week with Helen like I had before. I've never had it again. But I've never stopped asking questions. In fact, for me, asking questions does the job of punching through the ceiling when I pray. Sometimes other people help me find the critical questions like Helen did. Last year I met with a spiritual director who was really skilled at asking good questions, and she helped me through a tough time. Um, good therapists do that too. Um, and so does my husband, by the way. <laughs> um, asking questions, however they come, though, they can be so powerful. 
It's one way to experience in prayer what I believe Deuteronomy 4.29 says. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find God if you seek with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, so with the time that I have left this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer exercise, which is something we've been doing at the end um, in these last two weeks in our series on prayer. Um, It's divided into three segments, so it's going to be a bit more involved than the last two weeks. While I explain what we're going to do, the ushers will be passing out a half sheet of paper to everyone. Uh, The ushers will be passing out a piece of paper. Okay. Um, And when those come to you, uh, don't read them yet, okay? I'm going to go over them in in a minute, but I want to explain what's going to be happening in this exercise. Okay, so each segment is going to begin with a bell and then end with a bell, immediately taking you into the next segment. And at the very end of our exercise, you'll hear two bells. Okay. Um, in the first segment, I've set the timer for three minutes. And this is a time that I'd like you to just um, be present with yourself. It's pretty similar to the exercise that Kurt led us in last week. During this time, just pay attention to what you brought with you this morning into this room. What are you facing in your present circumstances? What most occupies your mind right now? Pay attention to your emotions. What are you feeling in this moment? And try to name it if you can. Pay attention to your body. What is it doing? Where does it feel tense? There's nothing else that you have to do but just pay attention to it and hold it. Uh, Kurt suggested, like, if you wanted to, to hold, have your hands open on your lap during this part of the meditation and just picture all these things. It could be like a KonMari thing where you're piling up things, but just piling, you know, piling them on your hand. But just hold it, okay? When the bell rings after the three minutes, you're going to go into a, the second segment, which is two minutes long. And during that time, I invite you to be present with God's love, to rest in the truth that God loves you deeply and unconditionally, and with the things that you're holding, know that God sees those things too. And then remember this, these two verses from Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate me from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate me from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the bell will ring again, and in the final segment, that timer is set for three minutes, during which what I want you to do is to pick a question to think about, to meditate on. I'm going to offer a bunch of questions from that sheet, but don't look at it yet. I'm not ready. Um, You can choose uh, just one. Just choose one from that list there. And since we don't have a whole lot of time, my suggestion is that you don't um, make it a goal to get an answer, okay? Um, or even have an, uh, an epiphany. It's just sit with the question. 
let the, read the question slowly and then let that question read you. Let it guide you to that place of honesty and vulnerability. Okay, so now go ahead and take a look at your sheet. The questions I'm going to suggest are structured around the Lord's prayer, prayer if you notice. <laughs> there are a number of them. So again, like I said, just maybe mark or underline the one that you immediately connect with um, that you want to focus on during those, that final three, three minutes. All of the questions can be covered by the main one that's at the top. What is God saying to you in this moment? And you can choose that one and just ignore the rest if you'd like. That's totally okay. If you come up with a different question, you can write it at the bottom. Okay, so let's walk through it real quickly. The first line of the prayer, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. This is what I'm calling the prayer of orientation toward God. It's that choice to face God and believe that God is facing you. Now, let me say here that God is spirit, which means that God's non-gendered and non-binary. So if you want to address God as father or mother or just God, theologically, you're good. Okay? So these are the questions. Who is God to me in this moment? What is keeping me from facing God or believing God loves me? What is obscuring God? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer of alignment in which we align our will with God's will to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. Here are some questions. Where is God present and working in me or around me? What is it that God may be asking of me or inviting me to in my own context? What does God really care about that I need to care more about? Give us today our daily bread, and this is the prayer of waiting while being dependent and confident in God's care. It's the prayer acknowledging hunger. So what do I need to wait for? What do I want from God? What am I hungry for? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is the prayer of confession, where we own our behaviors and emotions in order to restore relationship. It's where we choose community over isolation. But remember that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. You can still be working through forgiveness and still not be able to reconcile with someone. So here are some questions. How is anger, fear, or shame, and those three are chosen from the Enneagram chart, okay? Anger, fear, or shame affecting my relationship with others or with God? What is keeping me from forgiving from believing God has forgiven me or from forgiving myself? What is keeping me from engaging with others in community? And then lastly, let us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is a prayer of discernment, being aware of how our words and actions impact others and where they're not consistent with our identity as beloved children. It's also a prayer of vulnerability, that fully acknowledges and accepts our weaknesses and then flees from what's destructive. Okay. So in what ways am I hurting others or hurting myself? What may be a hidden wound that's driving me to react rather than respond with love? What are the destructive forces in my life that I need to run from? 
Okay, so hopefully we've chosen a question or maybe found a different one. Go ahead and situate yourself so that you're comfortable. And then take a couple of deep breaths and then you'll hear the timer or the bell. So be present with yourself, your thoughts, emotions, and body 